Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. God bless you guys. God bless the world, buddy. Let's go racing. This is the Loud Pedal Podcast. A very diverse cast of automobile racing characters. With your host, NBC Sports Television Analyst and part-time midget racer, it's D. Welch and Mr. Dylan Welch. Yeah, you damn right I got that out there. All that stupid-ass flagman. They got a dumb-ass flagman they can't see. And an expert in only one category, food. Now, look how big those things are. Little meat on the bone there. And cooked perfectly. Well, sometimes racing, but mostly food. When you're talking a, a meal, like before I'm about to die, I will ask for 15 to 20 chickens. It's heavy lunch, Tyler Burnett. And we are back on episode 57 of the Loud Pedal Podcast here on Flow Racing. Today's a good one, a special guest. We have Merle Bettenhausen coming on the show, part of Racing Royalty with the Bettenhausen family. Uh, his father, Gary, or no, excuse me, his father, Tony, uh, raced and was a USAC um there you know one of the early racers in usac d welch he raced in the indy 500 he was uh, uh you know kind of a midget racer that came out of chicago and, and and that side of the of uh the midwest but merle is a great story i mean he, you're gonna see he has one arm he um he actually crashed in an indy you know in an indy car race at michigan uh and lost his arm um so you'll he'll hear all about that story but man what a story it is yeah, I mean, it's, you know, as you said, it, obviously, I think anybody who, you know, is a USAC fan uh, really is probably more familiar with Gary, um, you know, from the, you know, Gary and Larry show, you know, with Larry Dixon and everything in the in the 1960s, those two battling, uh, you know, tooth and nail for sprint car championships year after year. And then, um, you know, obviously, Tony Sr., you know, their dad was uh was a legend of the sport in the 50s and and early 60s before he he passed away at indy but um yeah i mean just a you know i think when you think of when you think of racing uh it's hard to not think of the bettenhausen family because they're just so synonymous with uh with you know with with sprint car racing and, and and you know short track open wheel racing and um you know merle was was obviously no slouch either you know probably doesn't get the recognition he deserves for uh, you know, what he accomplished, you know, despite his, his disability, but, um, he's a, gr- a great guy and, and a lot of fun to talk to. So looking forward to everybody getting a chance to, to hear his story. They're right. Gary was, was, um, a 1969 USAC sprint car champion and also 71. He was an 80 and 83 silver crown series champion, um, inducted into the national sprint car hall of fame in 1993. So yeah, you're right. Um, a lot of the short trackers would recognize Gary, uh, Bettenhausen, uh, Tony Bettenhausen actually went on to race in 11 Indy 500s, I believe, and, and was a car owner too, um, at the time of his passing in, in 2000. So their, their story is extremely tragic. And, 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 and we've, and 
not necessarily because of you know the deaths in their family and what they had to endure, but the fact that they attempted the Indy 500 for over a decade and never won it. Um, and, 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 you know, his, their dad probably should have won it. You know, um, Tony as a car owner and a race car driver, um, was very good. So like, that's kind of their story is the fact that they go down in racing history as one of the greatest families to ever race, um, in Indianapolis, probably D Welch, but never won any 500. Yeah. Tony, you know, Tony had a couple races that, uh, you know, he was, was leading, I think, and, and, you know, had things happen that prohibited him from winning. And Gary, I think in 71, maybe, or one of those years was driving for Roger Penske, um, and like, let a, you know, let a bunch of laps and was, was gonna win. And I think, you know, had a mechanical failure that kind of, that took him out of contention too. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's another one of those families that, you know, tries for years and years to, you know, to win the biggest race and, and, and it just never happened for them. You know, they, um, you know, kind of similar to like the Andretti's, I mean, obviously Mario won, but, you know, they kind of had a, you know, had a, a bad luck spell over them at that place. It seemed like for, you know, for a long time. So, um, but, you know, but even apart from that, you know, I mean, their, their family endured a lot, you know, Tony obviously died, Tony senior died in a, a a practice crash in, in 61 at the speedway. And then, you know, Gary, you know, almost died in a, in a silver crown crash and, uh, you know, lost, basically lost the entire use of his left arm. And then Merle did lose his right arm, you know, in a, in a crash. And then Tony jr. Passed away in a plane accident. So they, they've endured, they did endure a lot, um, you know, as a family, uh, as a result of their passion for racing. And so I think that, you know, that kind of, um, you know, endears them in a lot of ways to, you know, a lot of people who are historians of the sport that just appreciate all the sacrifices they made, um, you know, simply out of, out of love for the sport. Yeah. Robert Miller, uh, was basically an adopted Bentonhausen, as he would have told you, um, we've had him on this show. Well, of course the rip the fence podcast, and we've, you know, used him with different projects over the years, uh, for, you know, telling the the sports history because Robin Miller is one of the greatest historians of IndyCar racing there to ever live. Um, he actually bought their midget once Merle stopped racing. Um, and, you know, he was a tremendous, you know, well, he was a tremendous rider um, and, and was great friends with Merle. They used to go to go to um, Charlie Brown's all the time in Indianapolis. And, and um, they, he was, uh, you know, he raced their car and was like kind of ran around with them, as you can say, like ran in the same circles as the Bettenhausens. Um, and and he'll, he's going to talk about Robin Miller on this episode. and It's going to be uh, a really good show. Let's go through some of our Sun Dollar Restoration hat shakes of the week brought to you by Sun Dollar Restoration. You can find them on sundollar.net. They are water, fire, mold restoration. Sorry, my dogs. Sorry, Jason. <laughs> Marshall and Millie are interrupting your uh, commercial here. Uh, Sundollar.net. You can find Jason and Kim. Great people. Jason, part owner in Sundollar Restoration. Stop! (laughs) He's a great handyman. Sundollar.net. All right, get in your cage. Go. (laughs) Now they stop. Sundollar.net. Sundollar Restoration Hat Shakes of the Week. Uh, let's go through some of the winners. J.J. Hickel wins the 48th Devil's Bowl Winter Nationals for the ASCS National Tour. Congratulations to J.J. Dason Persley, winner at I-44 with the Power Eye National Midget Series. Looking forward to seeing him race along with a bunch of other young and up-and-comers. Uh, at the Give Back Classic this weekend at Port City Raceway. Buddy Kofoid also... Uh, he won two races over the weekend at the Donnie Ray Crawford Sooner State 55. It's an annual race benefiting Donnie Ray Crawford. Um, he uh, took two of them in Oklahoma, and then I believe that's pretty much all that happened over the weekend. We didn't have any USAC races, right? The last USAC races we had was Cody Swanson. Yeah. Well, that was that was that that was last weekend, wasn't it? Have we talked about that really? I can't remember. Yeah. We- yeah, we talked about that in the last episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that would have happened before. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. So USAC actually is taking uh, a bit of a break. We we did talk about leaving. Stop. Are you serious? I can't I can't deal with these dogs. We talked about Levi Jones going to Indy Light Series uh, to be their racing director. Um, he, you know, USAC has a bit of a time here, time gap before they go out with the midgets um, to the West Coast where they're going to finish out their season. Um, and Arizona Speedway on November 12th, November 13th. Uh, so they actually have a bit of a gap. They, their last race on October 9th with the midgets. Uh, they're not going to race till the 12th in Arizona. And then they kind of, you know, go to Bakersfield after Arizona, Placerville, Merced, the Ventura to end the season. Uh, of course, Turkey night, but it's not Turkey night because it's not on Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's Saturday or is it Friday, day after Thanksgiving? One of those. Yeah, I believe it's. But it's not Thanksgiving. Yeah. Nope, nope. So that's um, that's what the midgets, you know, that's what they have going on. Millbridge is having a pretty big midget, midget race, right? Yeah, they've got a couple. They've got the midget race uh, next week, Monday and Tuesday. And then the micro, big micro race, 10 grain to win uh, the week after leading into world finals. So it's a big, uh, finally get some, some real race cars back down here again in the Carolinas. So it'll be a fun, fun lead into, to world finals. If I fly in that Wednesday morning, I could go to that micro race, right? Is that Wednesday night? No, it's Monday and Tuesday. I think For the micro race or. I or maybe it's Tuesday, Wednesday. Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, so maybe the micro race is Tuesday, Wednesday. So a ten grand win micro race down there, fifteen grand to win this weekend at Port City. There's a lot of micro money being slinging around here uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, then, of course, we got the Tulsa shootout this winter for the micros. So it's kind of getting it's getting big time season here for the micros. Uh, do you you got your ride ready or what? Uh, I know I can't find a ride. Nobody. Nobody uh, has a car available, so I'm going to be a spectator at home uh, for the micro race. I'll probably go to the midget race and go, you know, go at least go one of the nights and go hang out and watch. But um, can't find a ride. Dang! Does anyone have a micro ride for D Welch? Uh, Twenty five grand on the line. Probably won't have enough time to get one for Port City, but no, uh, I don't anywho. need one for Port City. I don't want one for Port City. <laughs> Who is your Sun Dollar well, Restoration gonna, hat? Somebody's gonna fly me out there. Um, I'll out give there. my I'll give my hat shake to um, Texas Motor Speedway and I guess ASCS right for doing the all these throwback NASCAR schemes uh, last weekend and that they had some late models that were that had the, the throwback schemes on them too and it just was cool like it was there was a Dale Earnhardt sprint car and like a t- i saw a terry labani cornflakes uh late model and stuff it just was it was cool like cool to see all the pictures and stuff of uh you know of the guys that participated in that so i thought that was pretty neat terry labani's career went downhill when his flakes started getting frosted didn't <laughs> when, they? As, soon as, as soon as he started frosting his flakes his career went into the toilet <laughs> terry labani is actually one of my favorite nascar drivers um, Texas Terry. He was uh, he was a Cup champion. He's a Hall of Famer. Oh now, yeah, I mean he was a good he was a good race car driver. Yeah, he bookended his career with Southern 500 wins, which is a lot of people never even won the Southern 500. Uh, my hat shake. Who's gonna go to? I guess Kofoid. He won two this weekend. He beat C Bell twice, so that gets yeah. a hat shake. C Bell's return to KK- C Bell's return to KKM. We'll see Bell back behind the wheel of the Keith Coons Motorsports machine. Is that a prelude to what we're going to see at the Chili Bowl? Yes. Uh, which I <laughs> think so. Uh, which Keith would, I'm sure, would be happy about um, putting that thing back in victory lane at the getting himself a driller, don't you think? I think he would like that very much. I think it'd give him a pretty good shot. <laughs> He's tired of getting beat by Larson. Yep. Uh, but, I mean, it's been like the last lap every single year at the Chili Bowl where something, you know, it's, it, you know, C Bell's been right there every single, every single lap of that race. Well, yeah. And Kyle started winning when Christopher, you know, left KKM. So, uh, you know, be interested to see what, 
what happens, you know, when, when Christopher gets back in a KKM car, if he's, if he's, um, you know, if Kyle's still having the same success. You're not racing much at all this year in that midget second place finishes. Not bad. Uh, for, for C bell, but of course, buddy Kofoid winner twice. He gets my Sun dollar restoration hat shakes of the week. Uh, he gets two of them. I guess I said shakes of the week because he had two wins, right? Hats flying everywhere. Yeah. Hats all over the all place. Right. You ready to talk to Gary or excuse me? you ready to talk to Merle. Wow. Yeah. I get all, I get all it. of them mixed up. <laughs> I know. Cause you had two, you had two Tonys. And then Gary's name ended in a Y as well. So I, I get all three of them mixed up. And then, um, of course, Merle has become my buddy. He, he When he calls me, hey, or when I call him, he's like, hey, Tyler. I'm like, you would have thought I've known him for 20 years when I really only met him twice. Yeah, I know. He's That's that's what's fun about him. He just is – he's fun to talk to and, you know, everybody's his friend. Yeah, he tells great stories as well. So hang on, get ready for the ride. Uh, Merle Bettenhausen is next. We are presented by Quick Pits and QuickPits.com. It's your one-stop shop for over, I'm trying to find the read here. It's your one-stop shop for over 350,000 national parts and accessories. From the brands you demand, truck, Jeep, auto, and ATV with fast free shipping to your door. Use promo code FLOWSPORTS at checkout for additional savings. That is promo code Flow Sports. Congratulations to our Sun Dollar Restoration Hat Shakes of the Week. It was Buddy Kofoid, and then I think yours was Texas Motor Speedway. Old Eddie Gossage. Is that right? <laughs> I wouldn't say necessarily Eddie Go- I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say Eddie Gossage, but uh, yes, Texas Motor Speedway. Those who painted, you know, the the Jimmy Johnson skins and. Um, the the Texas Terry Labonte skin, the Kellogg um, non-frosted flake machine there at the Texas Motor Speedway gets Dylan's Sun Dollar Restoration Hat Shake of the Week. Let's talk to Merle Bentonhausen. He is next. This is episode 57 of the Loud Pedal Podcast. You're on Flow Racing. How you like me now? And we're back on the Loud Pedal Podcast. We promised you one of my heroes, Merle Bentonhausen, has joined us here on the Loud Pedal Podcast on Flow Racing. Uh, Merle, first off, thanks for joining us this morning. I know you got uh, some a bunch of stuff to take care of today, including you know six workouts or whatever you do because you're one of the healthiest <laughs> men on planet Earth. Um, but thanks for joining us. Well, it's it's my pleasure and. Uh... It's nice to think that somebody still remembers me. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Ty, Tyler, why don't you tell the story of how you guys met? Because I, I think it's cool how you, how you guys got to know each other. Well, we're, we're um, currently working on a um, documentary that is about the history of USAC and um, history of auto racing in America, essentially, because, you know, um, the wars and, and that stuff that happened during that time period with World War One and World War Two kind of built the auto industry, which then transitioned to, um, you know, the 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 making of the automobile. Then, of course, the race car, because as soon as you make an automobile, men, you know, and and women, uh, they want to beat each other. Right. So um, right. Merle Beckenhausen's um, father, you know, raced at IMS, raced in the 500, you know chased you know USAC championships and and Merle uh we had him as one of our guests of the show and I got to meet him and he showed me Ray Skillman's uh auto collection um you know and he was also good friends with Robin Miller which of course we're good friends with so um I guess let's just start from there um because I haven't talked to you since Robin you know of course has left us um Robin was basically a family member of yours right just not by blood, but by adoption. And uh, he he and my brother Tony were very dear friends back uh, when he first started covering racing. 
And I always remember uh, Robin was a, a, a very big uh, proponent of not splitting up Carton and the IMS back in the early 90s. And uh, and him and Tony would get together and talk about what the what a bad thing that was. And uh, and so he he got close then. And and Robin always in his heart had a had a wish and a want to drive race cars and. I, I lost my arm in 1972 and then came back and raced with one arm. And in uh, 1974, Gary got hurt at Syracuse and, and I started evaluating my life. I was 30 some, 31 years old and thought if he could get hurt, then it could surely happen to me again. And and so I decided to stop. Well, Robin used to go have lunch with us and just was part of the family. And he thought, what a great opportunity if uh, Gary would sell him the race car I drove. So, so Robin bought the midget and started racing. And he had one of the greatest quotes that I ever heard from a writer or newspaper man or whatever when he when he talked about after he drove a race car a couple of times. He he made the statement. He said. Everybody that's ever been to a race or everybody, anybody that's ever written about a race and uh, and talked about how the back markers are in the way should just try driving a race car one time. They'd have a lot more respect to back markers or anybody that drove a race car because it's, it's one thing to watch and write about it and it's another thing to actually go out and do it. So uh, I, I just thought that was very, very intellectual when it comes to people talking about uh, racing looks pretty easy from the outside, but uh, getting in there and doing it is a different world. Yeah, absolutely. What was it like for you and, and, you know, I mean, all your brothers really, but, you know, your perspective just growing up the way you guys did, you know, your dad obviously was one of the most successful drivers of the era. And then you guys are, are trying to kind of, you know, get your career started too, you know, at a certain point and, and, you know, racing against each other and all of that. So what, what was it like when you guys were growing up and trying to get your own career started? Our dad, he made a statement. He said, there's a, I'll help you if you want to drive race cars. He said, but there's a lot easier ways of making a buck. Well, I was 17 when he died. Gary was, was 19. And, and so, we were actually farming 560 acres in Tinley Park, Illinois, and uh, our dad would help, but he was mostly gone racing, and and we actually, uh, and I mean that was our main thing, and and uh, as we grew up, and and as my dad died, uh, it was kind of left to us, and and Gary had just gotten married, and and left the farm, and so I farmed for a few years. But um, as I got out of the army and started racing, uh, I, I became known as well. One thing, first off, I was I was Tony's second son, and uh, and then uh, then when Gary started racing, I became Gary's younger brother, and then uh, then when Tony started racing, I became Tony's middle brother, <laughs> and then needless to say, when my son had a a pretty good Division One basketball career. He played, made the Sweet 16 his senior year at now called Missouri State. But I was known then as uh, Ryan's dad. <laughs> so, so it, being a middle middle child uh, is you you kind of get and I and I wouldn't change a day of my life being the middle child. But you 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 get known for. Uh, kind of being passed over is uh being a german my dad was very german so what anything that was taught on the farm was was taught to gary and i st sat sat or stood in the background and and learned by osmosis and then if gary gary w w took the time he taught me all that so so and as i raced you know gary when i came in, in racing after i got out of the army in 1967 that was just as Gary was reaching stardom and uh, in 68 became a sprint car champion. And, and so I was always one that 
uh, well, yeah, I don't know if he's going to make it, but uh, but we we just tried, and I I had a, a simple and and I just knew that I knew what was in my heart, and I knew what I loved to do, and 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 I wasn't in a hurry to do it, and so I treated racing as uh, the 24 hours of Le Mans. In other words, just do it a step at a time, learn every day, and keep getting better. And and I, I now that Gary's gone, I think he lived his life as he was running a trophy dash. In other words, there was no time to wait. He had to do it now. And uh, and he was just always in a hurry. And and, and needless to say. Uh, I ended up losing my arm my first race, which I don't know exactly how or why God had an intended for me, but uh, I don't know if I'd change a, a day in my life because uh, I think it's uh, the person that turned out from all the problems I endured in my life is, is as I like to believe, is is a, a good person. And, and so, uh, funny how it goes, but uh, then again, you know, I'm still living the 24 hours of Le Mans and, and Gary's with his racing in the trophy dash every day, you know, he's gone and, and not that I'm smarter than him, but my plan is, is working out. It just didn't work out in racing as I intended it to do. Yeah, it's your guys' story. I think um, what's, what's crazy was that at 17 and 19, uh, when you guys lost your dad in 1961, is that right? 1961, the Indy 500 yes. uh, practice. Practice. Uh -huh. um, your yeah. dad made a choice that day too to get in someone else's car, right? Paul Russo's yes. uh, to, to help mm -hmm. him test. He probably doesn't regret yes. that decision. I don't think either. No, he doesn't. What most of the world didn't know about Paul Russo is that he was probably my dad was closer to Paul Russo than there was anyone else in his family. In fact, my dad worked for the Champion Highway Safety Program and in 1959 and 1960, and he spent most of his time in Wisconsin and Iowa uh, having seminars and classes about driving safety. Well, in 1960, uh, with our farm, the year before it had been really wet, and so my dad decided to get a corn dryer to put in on the farm. and. When he went off to this Champion Highway Safety Program, Paul Russo came up and lived, and Paul Russo was like a backup father to to a Gary and I, and so he lived with us from, I think probably the first of November of 1960, all the way through March of 61. So he was basically a family member, and and that was why my dad had such a love for him that. Uh, uh, he, he was a backup dad to his kids, and uh, and there was a there was more of a closeness there than anybody in the world ever understood. And and earlier on in their careers, they used to travel and race together, and it, there was there was a bond there that was uh, uh, what anybody in the world ever knew about. What was your dad, Tony, like? I mean, how how. What kind of dad was he? Was he hard on you guys? What, you know how how was it? You know having him as your dad. He, if he told us once, he told us uh, a thousand times. Do it right or don't do it at all. And sometimes there was adjectives and adverbs in front of that 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 phrase or motivation. And the reason being is that when my dad was eighteen months old, his his Dad was out. They were farming. They had a big farm, and there was eight kids in the family. And he, my grandpa, my dad's dad, was out picking corn with a horse and wagon. And the horse reared up, kicked him in the stomach, and about eight or ten days later, he died of a ruptured appendix. So my dad grew up. He was the, he was the baby of the family. Uh, and uh, every time he w went out in the barn and saw a horse, he said. You took my dad from me, and that got him involved in cars and and different things. 
Well, being the baby of the family and not being much of a farm kid, he uh, he was wild. Uh, he had his share of crashes and racing and run-ins with police department and and uh, and just uh, didn't have that father that father image to teach him right from wrong. And so, well, he was a he would he would be classified a troubled child probably in today's society. And uh, so when he ended up, you know, he got he got away from the farm, went racing, and did his thing. So then, when he had kids, he he kept thinking to himself, "These kids aren't going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm I'm their father, and I'm going to teach them right from wrong." And so, I mean, he there was times you could be classified as a tyrant. He did things that that probably he probably have to go before the police department today. No, he never beat us, but the verbal abuse that he gave us was worse than <laughs> getting a good spanking. So, so yes, he was a dis disciplinary of the utmost, and uh, and I, I think it worked out pretty well, actually. <laughs> yeah, as were, as were probably many fathers back then, for, for sure. Um, right. Many say Robin published a lot the fact that he thought you were a better race car driver with one arm. Do you feel the same? Yes, I do. Uh, it's it's hard to distinct when you first start driving. Now, yeah, remember, I I lost my arm in '72. I started racing in 1967, so I I had a whopping five years of experience, and. Uh, and you, you, you—it's an emotional thing when you first start out till you get control of all that, and and you just think that if I if I try a little harder, use a little more muscle, I can make the car go faster. And uh, now I want I want seven USAC features. I and had some good finishes in sprint cars, uh, but. And I and and I could see myself getting better every day, but what happened when I lost my arm? I I, I came out. I was out of the race car. I crashed on July sixteenth, nineteen seventy two, and started racing again on June sixteenth, seventy three. So I was out of race car for eleven months. And the first thing I noticed, uh, we we were messing with power steering. We were the first one that put power steering in a midget and. Now, now everybody has it, but uh, we have a lot of mechanics. When you're when you're the front runner for or trying to develop something, there's some problems there. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it, it would power steering would work, but it worked about thirty percent of the time for the first few races. But I found out that even with power steering with one arm, you you can't. There's just a, a slight lag in in uh, Recovery when something when the car makes makes a a feeling that you don't like and so I kept working harder on making the chassis do more of the work than my arms, but I mentally I just I I just got in got into driving and thought if if I can understand the car and the perceptions of it and where it's good and where it's bad and concentrate on and not driving over the ability of the way the car is handling, and because I had to, because if I made a mistake with with one arm, there was a there was lag time getting back to where you wanted the race car to be. So uh, I said I've said many times if I had the mental capacity with one arm, if I would have had that with two, I, I probably would have been a world beater, a superstar like Gary was, but. Uh, it's just uh, it's hard to explain, but uh, it's it's a mental game when you, when you make the race car do more work. Your race car can do a lot more work than your arms can. How long did it take you when you came when you came back and got back in the car? How long did it take you to get comfortable driving with you know with just the one arm? I mean, how what was that kind of process like getting back comfortable behind the wheel? I started in June 16th, and uh, 
actually, we, our first race was Lost Creek, Kentucky, a little quarter-mile paved track. And, uh, and I had third quick time, first time back with one arm. And I, I ran, uh, I think, third in the, in the trophy dash, and, and I won the heat race. And I was uh, running probably fifth or sixth in, uh, in the feature when we spun a rod burn. But that was kind of a fluke. Uh, as I drove different tracks, I just found myself each time getting a little more comfortable, even with the power steering problems we had. And I was running, I think, like some eighths, a tenth, a twelfth out of 18 cars that started a race. And then there's an old saying on any given day, a blind, a blind pig can find an ear of corn. And I think a combination of that, that, saying and we raced in Johnson City, Tennessee. This was in, in August. So so I raced probably about 12, 14, maybe 16 races going into Johnson City. And uh, I qualified fourth and uh, won my heat race and, 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 was, and they invert the first nine. So I was starting fifth and make a long story short, I I the car was handling so good, I got it, went to, from fifth to fourth to third to second. And just as so I got in second, the party steering blew. And that was about the 18th lap of the race, a 40 lap race is what the feature was. And as I'm running second, and Bill Englehart is leading the race, a very, very quality race driver. And, uh, and I was faster than him, especially in turns three and four. And, uh, I started thinking this th this is probably where I got the mental thing really well now I could have got up there and raced him and and my mind says well if you get if you start racing him you, you know no power steering you're going to get tired he's going to use more racetrack and uh, and eventually you know you'll back off and finish second so, so I thought well Maybe I can maybe I can pass him by surprising him, and, and but I, he was better in turns one and two, but my best place was three and four. So I said, no, because if I get alongside him going on the front straightaway, we get to the corner, I'm going to be in the bad part of the track, and he's going to pull away, and he'll from that point on he'll never never give me as much track as I had because he didn't know I was as quick as I was. So I decided I'll wait till the last lap the last corner and make one move. And if I win, I win. If I don't, I run second. And I don't have to worry about being tired and, and racing another lap. So I, I just waited and I waited and I waited. And it's funny, I talk about the mental. I can tell you that this was in 1972. I can remember the people standing around the, the racetrack giving signals. And, and my mind was so focused that night that it just I just realized that that's where racing and, and most things, it's mental. So I waited last lap, last corner, and and hit it perfect, drove up along the out, uh, on the outside of it. Now, this was a three-eighths mile dirt track, and it was hard slick by this time. And as I got alongside of me, I surprised him, and I heard him standing on the gas, and I heard the engine rev, and I was going, and I, I beat him by six to eight inches, and uh, and it was uh, it was so close that and I once I got the checkered flag and relaxed, I went down almost ran head on into the first turn wall because uh, I relaxed and that whatever they say that you can get uh, this extra strength and different things when your your body's emotionally involved in doing something so. But we went down the back stretch side by side, and I looked over at him, and he he looked over at me, and we kind of shrugged our shoulders like, who won? Well, I had a young 18-year-old kid working on our team, and when I came around the fourth corner, I looked down the straightaway, and this kid was jumping up in the air, and if he had a basketball, he'd be doing dunks like Michael Jordan. And at that point on, I realized that we had won, and uh, it was a... It was a feeling that uh, has lived with me every day of my life since I did that. And part of it is the fact that 
we've all said in fun and kidding that I could beat your butt with one arm tied behind my back. Well, it's even better if you can beat a guy with that arm nowhere and uh, and just beat the 17th of the finest race drivers that ever drove a midget. And and it just said it, it just said it. I don't know what exactly in my mind that uh, anything you make your mind up to do. And through my life, I've done. I had many career changes, and realizing that uh, hey, this wasn't isn't going to be near as tough as what I did down in Johnson City, Tennessee. So, so it was. And from that point on, uh, one win can change it. Now my races, I was in the finishing eighth and seventh and sixth and at the end of the year i realized that my first thought was to go back driving indy cars and and then uh, i knew uh, i couldn't because of the restrictions of one arm so when the 1974 season started off i wanted to be usac midget champion and retire as a one-armed champion because I had a feeling that uh, no one else in the world would want to try to match that <laughs> accomplishment. <laughs> and uh, and just for for the facts, uh, I raced uh, indoors and, and different things. And I never won a race, but I had seconds and thirds and fourths. And and as, as the year was progressing, I kept getting better and better and better. And when i quit racing on july 4th basically about halfway through the season i was 42 points behind mel kenyon in the point standing things and you know it was about not to be christmas every day well in my mind if i'd have kept going uh, i'm pretty confident that i would have been a one-armed midget champion but that's now called history and and i still wouldn't change a day in my life because of uh the way I am. So if that's, and it's just been a different, a different run, but, but a great run. Why did you stop? Simply because at, at this time in Gary's life, in my mind, he was the best driver in the world. And for him to go out to go to Syracuse and have something happen to him and to get as hurt as he bet, as he did, you know, never had to, complete use of his left arm again. And I kept thinking that, you know, I spent 21 months in the hospital, uh, you know, lost an arm, uh, severe burns. And and if something, someone as good as he, Gary, could have an accident, it could happen to me. And you know what? The thought of, of being hurt again and spending that sort of period of time in, in a hospital again, or maybe even worse, was enough to say, uh, I think I I proved my point. I could race. I could win with one arm, and it wasn't the complete goal I set out for. But you know what? It was the one that no one's ever matched in the world, and kind of puts me in a special class, I guess. What was the device like that your your dad helped you build, right? To to um, attach to the wheel. Gary and I built it. Uh, and if you can, anybody in racing, the, the, you know what a, what a uniball is or a heim joint, right? And uh, and that was attached to the steering wheel. Approximately where my left hand, or excuse me, my right hand would go. And in my prosthesis, there's coming out of the wrist portion, fiberglass arm, a swivel elbow and, and all that. There, that's where the hook comes out. Excuse me. <clears throat> and we took a half-inch bolt, about three inches long, and screwed it in the end of this wrist portion of the prosthesis. And then at the end of that, we welded on a release pin. I think it was about three eighths. The three eighths release pull on the top of it, and the, and it would come out. And that plugged in to uh, the, the the uniball or the heim joints that, that was on the steering wheel, and then I would loosen all the cables and everything on the on the 
on the prosthesis. And literally, I had no assistance from the prosthesis. 100% of my driving came from the left arm alone. And uh, the reason we had to do that, USAC, back in the day, I had to do a test at IRP with, and there was news media and all the USAC officials there because they said that I had to two in a hook if sometime I could drive with the with the prosthesis but but I couldn't because the through the the use of the prosthesis and the lag time as quick as a midget steers uh, uh, you're way behind in, in trying to drive it so so it was there and it, it looked like it was doing the exactly what the right arm was, and that's exactly what was going on. It was all just following through whatever, whatever I was doing on, on you know this arm. But it's a, it's there's nothing better. Well, I'm sure there must be in some other people's minds, but but winning a race and and like I say, uh, uh, having devised something and and uh, winning a race that night is uh, uh, like I say, it's a it's a it's a mind a mind motivator for me every day of my life. Your your brother Gary, he didn't die in a race car. He died in an airplane, right? Tony. Tony died Tony? in an airplane crash. Yes. That's right. Yeah, he was forty seven. Gary, Gary's life, uh, like I say, it was a trophy dash. I mean, everything he did, he he did pretty big, and and he smoked cigarettes and. Uh, and had a few drinks every now and then, and and wasn't an exerciser. Worked hard in what he did and, and accomplishments and building race cars and that. Well, uh, and probably most of his failing health came from smoking cigarettes, and and he was 74 years old, and he had a lot of blockage, and and uh, it was difficult for him to walk great distances, and and uh, he just uh, and. March 16th, uh, 1974, his heart stopped. Uh, watching the rain delay at risk at, uh, I think it was, um, uh, watching. but uh, he, he was, he couldn't get his heartbeat going. He was on some medicine. And I think just, uh, just because of his lifestyle wasn't the healthiest person. And uh, used to always used to kid me about all my walking and running that I did, and 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 so. But I miss him every day. Yeah, yeah. That was that was Tony Tony Junior. That was in the plane crash, right? And that was in two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Tony got a pilot's license back in the early nineties. Had a nice Cessna one one seventy two, and all could call four people and. Had about eighteen hundred hours, and and he was an Indy car owner, and uh, and just decided he needed to get a twin. They bought a twin engine Baron and each Baron, and coming back from uh, a test at Homestead on Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day, two thousand, uh, only had you know maybe fifteen hours in the plane, and hit ice and. Uh, they put the boots on, but maybe put them on, you know, being a rookie. We don't do things quite correctly when we're rookie. And went up and it plain iced and it, those aircraft were known for icing. And, and uh, it did a flat spin when he did lost speed and flat spin. And he had his wife and two business associates with him. And, and that was near Lexington, Kentucky on Valentine's Day. and. Uh, 2000. So, miss him every day too. And he's got a couple daughters. They're now in their 30s and 40s. And and uh, I I I, have, I was the executor, so I had a racing team to take care of and actually get rid of it because I didn't have the sponsor money to keep it going. And and uh, so I am uh, last man standing as far as the male portion of the Bettenhausen family. I have a sister that's two years younger than me that lives in Phoenix and 
and we're very close and uh, and just uh, try to keep uh, I love I love the name and and I'd like to keep it going as long as I can. So what's what's day to day life for you like now, Merle? I mean, I know you're at you know go to Charlie Browns and everything else that you know a lot of those those guys do there in Indy and everything else. But what's uh, you know what's what are your days like? You know now as you you know as you I know you walk and you you know we were talking before we really came on that you used to you know you ran up until five or six years ago. What is it now? And you know but you still you walk and everything and you're healthy and and but you know what's what's your days like now? Uh, morning starts with a 40-minute uh, walk on my treadmill, which is 2.2 miles, and that's every day of my life, uh, unless I've had a doctor's appointment or something happening like that. And up until COVID, uh, I retired in 2010, and I started volunteering at the VA hospital here in Indianapolis. And and I had uh, was coming up on 10 years when COVID hit, and uh, and so. Uh, I did every day for 10 years, uh, and I I talk to the troops, go room to room, and talk about uh, my years in the Army, which were very, very mellow. I was a personnel specialist, and I always told them that the guys that talk about their weapon of choice, and I said, I got pretty lucky, guys. My weapon of choice was a royal typewriter, <laughs> and it was always get a laugh, but but it was just uh, uh, having an arm missing, and, and uh, Walking in, and not many people felt sorry for themselves once they saw me. But uh, anyway, now over a year. Uh, but there's another veterans group that I belong to called Warriors Hope down in Greenwood, and uh, and I that has been going on for 11 and a half years now. I, it's a smaller group. There's usually about 10 to 12 guys and it's guys with PTSD and different things. And, and, uh, and we just go in there and, and, and have a good talk and it's religious based and, uh, God's there most of the time with us. And, uh, that's my Tuesday night and Wednesday's kind of my, my laundry day or shopping day. And Thursday, I, I go to lunch with my daughter and my grandson. They work for Indigo here in Indianapolis and, Friday is uh, is my race lunch, racer lunch. Saturday I've got some uh, grandchildren. Well, one's out of college, one's in college in Wittenberg, a football player. And his dad coaches at Bishop Chittard, one of the top uh, parochial schools in town here. And so uh, Friday night I've generally got some sort of a basketball game. Or right now we're in football season and. Saturday is uh, is uh, with them, and I've got my son that lives in uh, uh, Glen Carbon, Illinois, just north of St. Louis, and his daughter is racing go karts. She's won a couple of races, and and she is just she's just turned eight, and then his son named Ford is a golfer golfer and last six eight weeks he's been playing golf tournaments for six and under and he's won two tournaments and uh, and so uh his his mom was a miss soccer player her junior year at, in missouri and played scholarship soccer and as i said my son was first pick of steve alford and and played at southwest missouri state and they lost to duke in the 1999 NCAA championships and, and playing in the Sweet 16. So, uh, so I've just I've been blessed with a with a beautiful family and seven grandkids and and uh, and just uh, that's what I say. Uh, I'm the luckiest man alive. When I think of you know, someone told me back in 1972 that I was about uh, maybe. 40 seconds or so, because what happened, the shield came off my helmet. So the fire was up in my face and and you can see this area right here where the opening was in the helmet, where I was burned bad enough to have skin grafts and had two sets of eyelids grafted on me. But they told me that probably another 45 seconds, 
my eyes would have dissolved and I've been blind, or maybe another two minutes from having my arm completely severed, I, I, I could have died of loss of blood. So when I think how close I was of uh, not living another day past 1972 and the things I have in life and uh, and the family I have in life that uh, no one's been more blessed or luckier than I am. And you live it with pride and we that's what we appreciate about you. So here's his book. Well, his, his family's book, um, Tony Bettenhausen and Sons, an American Racing Family Album. You got you to gotta read it. It's really good. Um, at, on the back, you have this quote talking about the Indy 500, which your family chased, you know, for a long, long time, never achieved it, but still, uh, I'm pretty sure that they remember the Bettenhausen name at Indy for sure. Well, uh, probably one of the very nicest things is, uh, I just had a fan come up to me. It wasn't this year. I think it was, I think it was right after the book came out and, and he, he said, he introduced himself and and the first words out of his 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 mouth was i've never this is hard for me to say but he said i've i've never met anybody from a family that's racing royalty and uh and that uh that goes right here because it's just uh, we're just hard working people that tried to do the right thing and and had some success and had some failures but uh the, the, I like to believe that the character that we've carried over the last 70 plus years or whatever it is, is, is what I'm proud of. And, uh, and it just, uh, makes, makes my, my heart soft, I guess. And you're still younger than me, basically <laughs> your body. is. At least. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you know what? It's a, uh, Everybody goes in training programs, and and I, I see I I here's here's what happened to me. I, my accident was in 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 eighty or excuse me seventy two, and just living life and you know doing what you do when you're not racing and and no sports or anything. I gained about sixty pounds, and I was near two hundred and twenty pounds in nineteen eighty two, and my back hurt, my my feet hurt, my my legs hurt and 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 this isn't corny this is true i thought to myself i said you know what god gave you a second chance and this is what you're doing with it and and so i had i had been i always worked on not being over overweight and and so i said said to myself god i got to do something different so I did the Dr. Atkins diet. I did this. I did that. And from, finally, someone said, hey, why don't you become a vegetarian? And I kept thinking, what? That's the response I get now when I tell people I'm a vegetarian. Give up my steak? Oh. And uh, so I did. I gave up steak and I gave, gave up chicken or I gave up all red meat. Haven't, haven't had a bite of red meat. Red, excuse me. Haven't had a bite of red meat since 1983 and then i gave up chicken and i'll have some fish every now and then i think i'm a pecatarian or something not not really a vegetarian but uh, uh i went from 220 i weigh 148 pounds right now and uh and i do 50 sit-ups every morning and i uh, for the last seven or eight years haven't had a drink since i went through my divorce in 1991 right? and uh, and it's not, I'm not trying to be the healthiest person, but I want to feel good. I had, I had two months back in 1972 that I didn't feel very good. And, and the, the better you, you love your body and the more, the harder you work at it, uh, the more rewards you receive. And reward is every day ends tomorrow or ends when I'm uh, making, but when it ends, I'm going to be feeling good. And that's what I'm after. Yep. I love it. It's inspiring. It's inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, and the, along with be, being a pecatarian or vegetarian, I tell everybody, uh, the diet, it's diet's real easy. 
It's, it takes four layers, PTFD. And people say, what? I said, the best diet in the world is the PTFD diet. What's that? Put the fork down. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and if you diet. just try That's it. That's the diet Tyler needs to go on. <laughs> That's what I need, yeah. Well, yeah, that's it's just, it's it, and 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 true. I'm I feel better now than I did in 1982 because I'm not carrying that extra 70 pounds on me, and uh, it's uh, it, I'm 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 the most blessed man in the world, and I thank God every night for that. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was. It was good to talk to you and hear your family story and your story, and um, it's inspiring for sure. Even the way you live your life now is pretty amazing. So, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Merle. Well, you know what? Uh, you guys may feel blessed, uh, and uh, and thank you so much. And it's it's been all my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Merle.